Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. As usual, it's a hell of a show, and I'm really eager to jump into it. At the back end of the show, we'll be paying our respects to the actor and activist Ed Asner. Now, I met Ed shortly after I arrived in Los Angeles to report on the 1992 LA Rebellion, a beautiful uprising of black people, Latinos, and progressive white and Asian people. Shortly after the rebellion, I visited Ed in his office. He was more than eager to hear about the rebellion. No sooner had I sat down to talk when Ed began to uh, pepper me with questions about the rebellion. He wanted to know everything about it, and we talked for a few hours. By the time we were done talking, we became friends. And over the years, we continued talking about everything, especially the injustice and many horrors that this system brings down on people. Ed was outraged by the deadly pound down the system regularly brings down against people here and around the world, and he often found the ways to show his support for the people. Although he has millions of fans as an actor, I remember him as an activist with a love for humanity and as a friend. In the Reagan years, the 1980s, he spoke out against the war in El Salvador, which killed 70 to 80,000 Salvadorans and made one million refugees. He was part of the movement to demand a new trial for political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, leading many other celebrities to also take a stand. In 2015, he wrote an endorsement of a series of protests against police murder that took place in New York called Rise Up October. I talked to him on The Michael Slate Show, along with Sharon Irwin and Andrea Irwin, the grandmother and mother of Tony Robinson, a 19-year-old black man murdered by a Madison, Wisconsin cop in 2015. This past week, Ed died in Los Angeles at the age of 91. As an actor, Ed won an unprecedented seven Emmys. He continued to work doing voice acting and live action films. He also appeared in eight movies that have not yet been released. Opening the show up, we'll be hearing an interview with climate scientist, Dr. Donald Wubbles. This interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, but I haven't had the time to air it until now. And I was just thinking, it's become even more urgent to understand what's happening with the climate emergency in the short span of two weeks. It's important, it's crucial, it's life and death for humanity to understand what's going on, why, and what we need to do. Extreme weather events are happening around the world, causing hundreds of deaths and impacting millions of people. Right here in the US, we have an ongoing damage caused by Hurricane Ida. At the same time, the Calder fire in California has been unstoppable by thousands of firefighters as it burns toward Lake Tahoe. So let's hear Dr. Donald Wubbles with an appropriate introduction by James Taylor. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you again. Our next guest is Donald Webbles. He is the Harry E. Preble Professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was the founding director of the University of Illinois School of Earth, Society, and Environment from 2006 to 2008. And he has contributed to and been an editor of reports of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, Don, welcome to the show. Joe, good to meet you, Michael. Yeah, you too, man. We began preparing to interview you a couple weeks ago, and a couple weeks ago is when the world was watching deadly floods in Germany, Nigeria, 
and Bangladesh, a killer heat wave in the northwest of the U.S. and the southwest of Canada, and a catastrophic series of wildfires in the American West, some of which are still burning. In those two weeks, things have gotten worse. The New York Times now has an extreme weather update that they run on the front page because there are almost daily events. For a few days, the news media is talking about another huge emergency. The disruption of the Atlantic current, predicted and modeled for years, looks like it's beginning to happen. And now, and now there's a new IPCC report, climate change widespread, rapid and intensifying. It begins, scientists are observing changes in the Earth's climate in every region and across the whole climate system. Many of the changes observed in the climate are unprecedented in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And some of the changes already set in motion, such as continued sea level rise, are irreversible over hundreds to thousands of years. However, strong and sustained reductions in emissions of carbon dioxide, CO2, and other greenhouse gases would limit climate change. All this makes what we are going to talk about even more urgent. I've got a bunch of questions here I've been preparing and revising, but first, what are your thoughts of this new IPCC report? Sure. They, uh, in fact, I was just asked if I could uh, send in a few sentences to various newspapers around the country about with that same question. And so, you know, as a scientist who studies the Earth's climate, I'm well aware of the changes that have been going on. But until you see something like this new assessment that pulls it all together into one place, you don't really realize just how significant a change is really happening on our planet, particularly with the, you know, the more ex- intense extreme weather events that we, that we have. And so I, I've even taken to calling those unnatural disasters because they're really being driven by climate change. And that's one of the big things about this IPCC assessment It's really for the first time it really pulls together our knowledge that we are analyzing almost every single severe disaster event as it happens in terms of what role is the changing climate playing in that event and finding that that those events largely would not have happened if we hadn't had a changing climate. You know, it's, it's really straightforward for a, uh, an atmospheric scientist, a meteorologist like myself, to, to show that extreme events of a you know, particular extreme event, like the extreme heat in the Northwest, occur because of a certain type of weather pattern. But then if you can dig deeper and go down below that and really see you know, what led to that particular weather pattern being the way it was, you find that the changes in climate are behind it. What we'd like to say is that basically all weather is being influenced by the changing climate. But you particularly see that in these extreme events because they're coming more intense and more difficult for humans and life on our planet to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of questions I'm going to ask you in, a, in, a, in just a few minutes, but a big question for me right now then is listening to what you're saying then, what the hell do we do? Well, I think there's a lot we can do. It is imperative that we try to keep these temperature changes as low as possible. So the goal of the Paris Agreement uh, was to see if we could aim at 1.5 degrees centigrade. 
And that is going to be very difficult to do. And uh, But nonetheless, uh, you know, we're already over, we're almost essentially at 1.1 or 1.2 degrees centigrade now. And so can we hold it to 1.5? It's going to be difficult. Uh, but if humanity really aims itself at stopping this, I truly believe that we can. And um, uh, But we just have to decide that we're going to put the effort in to do that. What it's going to take is uh, to reduce the emissions that uh, produce this problem, which is you know, the changes are being driven by the increasing amounts of carbon dioxide and methane and some other gases and various particles in the atmosphere that are driving, you know, are leading to these changes. And so we need to slow down those emissions dramatically in order to really uh, not cause further large changes in climate in the future. These are very long-lived gases, particularly carbon dioxide. And so, so we have to work hard to reduce uh, its emissions, and that means uh, uh, doing something about our, our, our use of fossil fuels and how we release emissions from those use of fossil fuels into the atmosphere. So whether it be from coal or natural gas or, or, uh, or oil and gasoline. And so we got to figure that out. Lots of new technology is developing that can allow us to get there, but we, I think we need to really push it ahead strongly if we're going to really make this happen. Well, tell me something. Just uh, I'm going to move on in a little in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you this: When you're talking about if we can keep pushing, if we can push it ahead, if we can actually do this, how do you see that happening? I mean, I'm asking you well, that I because think, it's yeah. It's, I think it's, we got to be go ahead. determined to do it as a planet. You know, we can't just say each nation go do its own thing, and some agree to do something and others don't. We we really need to decide this affects all of us, and we have to do something together. You know, we did that once before. You know, I was a leader in the studies of stratospheric ozone, and the Montreal Protocol was developed, that uh, which was an agreement from of all the countries in the world. Uh, and the reason it's called the Montreal Protocol is because it, it first happened at a meeting in Montreal, Montreal, Canada, and uh, we uh, we were able to uh, eventually, essentially stop the emissions that were caused driving those changes. Now, climate change is no question. It's much more difficult because we're talking about our energy and transportation systems needing to be transformed. But with the technology in hand, you know, we are we're certainly capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the question of technology versus the willingness of those who run the society to do something about it. So let me let me ask you this. You know, there's a lot of questions I have now, so I want to move on a little bit. But um, when we do get rainfall, okay, it's more likely to be bigger rainfall. And when we get drought, it's more likely to be a bigger drought. That's what you said at one point, right? And Yeah, as, basically, we, okay. we tend to say the wet are getting wetter and the drier getting drier. But also that when you do get precipitation, whether it be rainfall or, or snowfall, it's more likely to be larger than it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, as somebody who lives in California, I can see this happening. Last year seemed like a fairly normal year with slightly above average rainfall, though people may not have noticed it during the uh, pandemic. Then, wham, suddenly deep drought mm-hmm. is in, it's back, and temperatures in June were in the 90s. So why is it? Why are the extremes in, in weather becoming so much more extreme? So the question for Southern California, or for California and actually for Arizona and, 
and some of the other southwest states, is that the changes in climate are tending to change what it used to be called the horse latitudes. It's changing the, the circulation pattern in the atmosphere such that where there tends to be less precipitation, put more and more into that region of the, of the world. And so, uh, you know, so it, goes, it kind of goes along with this idea of the drier getting drier. So that, so it really has to do with those circulation patterns in the atmosphere, and that has a big impact. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm thinking of two extreme events. One is the heat dome that parked over the Northwest. Extreme heat that killed dozens led to fires that completely wiped out the uh, a village in Canada, killed probably a billion uh, marine animals, and started fires that are still burning, a catastrophe. The other is the flooding in Europe, mainly Germany, which happened with uh, when a rainstorm remained stationary over a large area, depositing more water than any area could ever do, could handle. And both of these uh, events seem to share the same phenomenon, that is, weather systems that persist and therefore cause abnormal amounts of destruction, which is a really dangerous position, a really dangerous thing to be doing, that, that to be happening there. No, that's exactly right. And one, it's one of those things that we're still trying to uh, better understand. Um, the, our, our atmospheric models, the models of the Earth's climate system, that have the atmosphere, the oceans, the land, um, the biosphere, all treated in them, don't produce as strong a standing highs and lows as we seem to see in, uh, the, in the current atmosphere. And so we're trying to understand what it is we're missing in those models. But this does seem to be one of the phenomena that goes with the changes in climate that we do get more of those standing kind of events where the weather system just moves extremely slowly. It just sits over a place. We saw it to uh, some degree with uh, some of the hurricanes in, in recent years where they just come in like the one that hit Houston and just sit there and sit there for days. And the net result is huge impacts on, on the region. And those kind of events are particularly devastating, as we just saw in, in the Northwest and in Germany and Belgium. All right. So we're talking about global temperature now. We're talking about global temperature rises of a few degrees, a few degrees Celsius. When you say the temperature is going to rise three degrees, it doesn't sound like that much. But that is not spread out uniformly, not in time nor in geography. And it is not just uh, a couple of degrees warmer every day than it is in the same no, the no. same everywhere. It's not the same. So let's talk about that. Two questions come out of that. What causes this unevenness? We'll do that one first. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, when we talk about a change of a few degrees and why it matters, we're talking about a change that's averaged over the entire planet. And most of those uh, the most significant changes are occurring over land. Uh, and it's all set up by weather patterns. So weather patterns determine the day-to-day. And we all know, you know, a typical weather pattern, you know, such as we have here in Illinois, you know, overnight, we, you know, we can see 10 to 20 or 30-degree changes Fahrenheit. But we're talking about looking at a 24-hour average, looking at then the changes over all land, all ocean of the world, and saying that what that like, looks like over a year time period. So if you want a comparison of that with, uh, you know, what's happened in the past, uh, the last uh, ice age where, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in central Illinois where the last ice age there was a you know, thousand plus feet of, 
ice over where I'm sitting during that time period. And that was about 11 degrees Fahrenheit colder than now. So when we talk about a few degrees, uh, that, can, that can make a pretty dramatic difference in what our climate is like. You know, you even know, for example, if you if you live in uh, Wisconsin and you move to Dallas, uh, you know, you, a person knows that the climate is very, very different, you know, even averaged over a year. But now average that over the entire planet. And so... If we're talking about you know, Dallas increasing by a certain amount, actually we get even larger changes in the entire northern latitude. So, so Wisconsin will be seeing even larger changes. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking with our guest today, Donald Wubbles. He is the Harry E. Preble Professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Yeah, I have one more thing I want to ask you about that one there which is what's the impact of the unevenness, especially regarding catastrophic weather phenomena? That's something that people, you know, people really really need to understand that and, and to see why it's happening, what's happening. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, because of those, those gases in the atmosphere, those greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, et cetera, I mentioned before, they're absorbing uh, radiation that uh, would have uh, otherwise have gone out to space. And so what it's doing is putting more overall energy into the Earth's climate system. So that means that there's more energy available to set up kind of unusual situations, to set up weather patterns that, can, that have more energy in them. So that's part of the reason. And, and also a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor, so you can, can uh, get more um, water in the atmosphere that can precipitate. So it tends to set up situations where you can have more large, intense, severe weather, whether it's something like a heat wave or a drought or a flood or many other types of different extreme weather events. So, uh, so that's what happens. It's really all because of that extra energy in the, in the Earth system that uh, is driving this. Mm-hmm. Now, in your recent article, The New Paradigm unnatural disasters in changing climate. You focused on uh, wildfires, which, of course, we experience here in the West Coast all the time. There are many different ways in which climate change exacerbates wildfire risk and wildfire intensity. Let's talk about that. Certainly. Uh, So, you know, we know wildfires are a natural, natural phenomena, and we've seen them, you know, long before we saw the changes in climate. But what's happening now is uh, that if you do get a wildfire, the situation is ripe for larger events. The, the atmosphere is warmer. The trees, the, the plants are drier. They're getting less precipitation in the past. So we've got the droughts going on and more problems with insects and diseases that are helping create the trees and plants be even you know, more fuel for, for a wildfire. And so you're, you're right for those situations. But it's not just happening in northern, Cal- or northern and southern California either. It's happening uh, throughout much of our western United States. It's happening in Greece. Right now there's major wildfires going on in Greece. During uh, our winter months, Australia tends to have extremely large wildfires. So every, any place that tends to be drier, warmer, and, is, and all of those being intensified with the changes in climate are tending to see larger, more intense wildfires than they've had in the past. Uh-huh. 
Now, let me ask you this. When we're talking about this, you know, I was thinking about this next thing, and this is probably about the last thing we're going to talk about, but by 1990, barely 30 years ago, it had become clear that the predicted impact of increased CO2 in the atmosphere was inexorably raised global temperatures. Now, we know from research into ancient Earth climates how different the, the, uh, the Earth has been in the past with such high levels of carbon in the atmosphere. Yet, in that 30 years, with that knowledge, the amount of CO2 that has been pumped into the atmosphere by the actions of humans and really by the actions of, and inactions of big corporations and governments has doubled. It's doubled, and the normal response to, of the system to an existential threat to life on the planet has been to make it twice as bad. Am I overstating that? What's the level of, of, of action? Well, really I wish you were done? overstating it, but no, you're not. And unfortunately, we have seen a, a tremendous increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The current concentrations are something like 415 or so parts per million. Sounds like a very small amount, but these gases absorb radiation that, as I said, radiation would otherwise go to space. And so they play a very important role in our system naturally. And now we increase the amount. It's what's called the greenhouse effect. But you can kind of think about it as being like a blanket on the Earth's surface. And now we're increasing the amount of carbon dioxide, increasing the amount of methane and some other gases. And it's like putting another blanket on the Earth. And so the Earth has to warm. And essentially that's what's going on. And we're seeing this uh, very significant increase in the... Uh, in the amount of uh, carbon dioxide and methane. Methane concentrations have more than doubled in, in the Earth's atmosphere. The largest significant, most significant gas in terms of its changing concentration is carbon dioxide, but methane is also very important, and it's been increasing very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the, the last question I'll be asking you, but I, I, do have to, <laughs> I do have to ask this because it's sort of when you're looking at this, when you're looking at what's happening and you're thinking about you know, okay, all of this stuff that you've been talking about. And yet, year after year, it just keeps getting worse, you know, in a, in a, in a certain sense. And the, the idea, I mean, you know, you look at it throughout the world, the idea that the care that needs to be actually practiced in, the, in terms of actually saving the lives of the, of the planet and of the people that inhabit it and all the other, you know, creatures that inhabit it. You know, you have a choice there. And it, and it really, a lot of people don't even understand that because it's so hidden from us that, you know, people don't know. Like, for instance, you can come up and talk about this very well. And I think it's really important. And I'm really eager to get this out, when, what we're talking about now. But, you know, this whole, again, this thing of the level of action really matching the danger we face. It's a question that people are, are left in a lot of ways. They're left swamped. They don't even really know what's happening. And so what would you say to people in terms of what they should be doing? I mean, not, and I'm not asking you to say, you know, I, I'm God or something, but you have a definite idea of what's happening here and what really needs to be done. And if people know what really needs to be done, then I think, I think yeah. that people will actually stand up. A good number of people will begin to stand up and say, we're not going to allow this to go on. Well, it's, it's, you know, basically, you know, we have four choices. Our choices are to mitigate, to reduce those emissions of those gases and particles I mentioned. We can adapt and be, try to be resilient, or, or we can try to use geoengineering, and I, I, I tend to avoid that one because you start fooling with Mother Nature, you're likely going to get burned. You know, trying to put things in the atmosphere, for example, that might cool the Earth is a, is a very dangerous thing to do because of the potential consequences that you hadn't thought about. And the fourth one is suffer. And right now, you know, we've been doing 
a little mitigation, a little adaptation, and some suffering. And, uh, you know, so if we're going to avoid future suffering, what we really have to do is do a lot of mitigation. We want to avoid you know, the worst of the possible changes in the future. Uh, at the same time, we also know there will be more climate change, so we are going to have to adapt and be more resilient to what is going on. And we can do that. You know, we can develop, you know, systems, uh, engineering systems and, and, and other ways of dealing with the fact that this is going to be a warmer world with higher sea levels and so forth. But we need to do those things in sufficient quantity to minimize the amount of future suffering. You know, that's one of the things, though, that really attracted me to what you know what you're saying, because you actually take it seriously on that level. And I think, you know, the need for this to get out to people, you know, far and wide that, look, it's not we don't have to sit here and just like roll along and take the punches. It's actually whatever's been going on, you know, needs to stop. And the, the idea of just allowing the kind of let's roll through, you know, we get we get better gas, we get better this, we get better that. And no, not enough people actually even understand that we could, you know, stand up and stop this in, in some way. And it's, and it's not it's not like it's going to be just like raising your hand and saying, hey, you, stop. There's actually a need for people to understand and to spread an understanding of what's going on and then actually mobilize people to you know, get in the streets, do whatever, to, to stop this stuff. Because if not, it's not unusual. So if you look at, like, the course of things that went wrong in this just on this planet alone, in terms of the whole disappearance of peoples and, and all this other stuff. But then you can also figure out we are we are one little spot in a whole galaxy and a whole whatever. And there's a lot of there's probably a lot of places that actually have gone down by the lack of being able to do something about it, you know, and whether or not not even with people being there, but actually yeah. we have the possibility well, I, of doing it. So go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, there's no question we're gonna have to work hard to deal with this problem. It is a very it, you know, some some scientists have called it the most important issue humanity has ever faced, and uh, and it very well may be. We can deal with it. We're going to have to work hard to do that. But I think it's also important that we maintain this sense of hope, not get depressed about it and just give up. And so, uh, you know, what we need to figure out is how we can pull together and actually deal with this effectively. And I try to spend a lot of my time trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to do, uh, see some of the stuff that you've been working on or send something to you, <laughs> a letter, <laughs> is there a way that you can get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I, I, I get a lot every day, <laughs> including some attacks by people who don't want to accept that this is real. But through the University of Illinois, uh, my email is readily available, wibbles at illinois.edu. And uh, I'm always happy to interact with people and try to help show them what I understand about the science mm-hmm. and what is understood. I recently led a special assessment of the impacts of climate change on the state of Illinois, and I'm currently working with uh, people here in the state legislature and how we can actually make use of that for the state. I'm also working on trying to better understand the Great Lakes and how they will be uh, impacted and what that means to uh, the people both in the U.S. and Canada that are bit, that you know, find, find that such an important resource. So there's a lot of things I'm involved in. And then I'm also, look, you know, trying to look at various policy actions as well as my science. I've tried, I spend a lot, most of my time on science, but I, I do try to, I do think it's important for scientists to get involved in how we translate science to, uh, to policy. And so I'm, I try to uh, help with that as well. Yeah. And I think we just, we also got to help people 
see that that it's not bad to get mad about what's when you're when these forces are destroying the earth. <laughs> you know, it's not bad. <laughs> you gotta you gotta you gotta have some anger in there about this is not acceptable. You know, and uh, I think too much people. You know, we've we've grown we've grown in a way to just be you know sit back and. You know, some people will rise up and demonstrate, some people won't, but we need people to actually stand up and say, no, we are not going to allow you to destroy the planet. And I think what you do is actually helping people a lot to understand how important that is. I hope so. I try to do my little bit. <laughs> I, I maybe don't do enough, but I try. Well, you know, now that we've, t- now that we've touched base with you, we're going to be calling you every time you open your mouth, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks That's a lot, man. All right. Take care now. Okay. Bye. Michael. Bye. Yeah, you too. Bye. All right, we've been talking with Donald Webbles, and he is the Harry E. Preble Professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was the founding director of the University of Illinois School of Earth, Society, and Environment from 2006 to 2008, and he has contributed to and been an editor of reports of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned. Change. 
now let's hear an interview from 2015 with Ed Asner, along with Sharon Irwin and Andrea Irwin, the grandmother and mother of Tony Robinson, a 19-year-old black man murdered by Madison, Wisconsin police in 2015. We will be talking with Sharon Irwin and Lorianne Carter and perhaps one other person, the grandmother and aunt of Tony Robinson, a 19-year-old black man murdered by a Madison, Wisconsin cop on March 6, 2015. They're going to be talking about Tony, his life and death, and Rise Up October and why it's so important. But opening the show up, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show the first time, you know, he, he was one of earlier, many times when I first started the show. In fact, he was one of the first guests I ever had on my show, Ed Asner. Ed's an award-winning actor, a man with a heart that's a gigantic heart and a sharp brain and who has never hesitated to step out and fight for what's right and what's needed in the world. Ed, welcome to the show. Oh, that cut to the chase. <laughs> oh, man, just, just, just my life. I, I want to wrestle with a grizzly bear this hour of the morning, brother. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you something, man. You signed on to the call for Rise Up October, which is three days in New York, including on the 24th a day, aimed at filling the streets with people who will no longer tolerate police murder of brown and black people. Right. I want to know why you did that, why you signed on to it. Why well, you twisted my arm. <laughs> you know, I was sitting there last night, and I told my wife, I know he's going to say that. Okay, let's get beyond that. <laughs> he twisted both arms. <laughs> no, it was impossible. And he's really strong, you know. He's really strong. I did it because you, uh, you led me and coerced me to contribute to this effort. I have no idea how successful it will be. But uh, my feeling was that uh, if all those people that uh, are cited to be appearing and speaking there can ignite this, this large assemblage, and hopefully the weather will finally be good, that it will uh, create a spark that will uh, generate throughout the country. And uh, people will be... Uh, I made some comment about uh, people lie in a, in a, uh, in a thin of inactivity and uh, hopelessness and uh, negativity. If the march, uh, the assemblage in, in New York works, maybe we'll provide the spark that will awaken the sleeping giant of the people of the United States. Let me ask you this. Uh, let me read people what you wrote recently. And it was a statement for Rise Up October and October 24th in particular. Yeah. You said, when people become inspired in mass, which is not too often, they can leave their stupidity behind and truly move mountains and advance the glory of mankind. October 24th can well be one of those rare occasions when this occurs. Let's talk about that. Well, I, I believe it. I, I'm counting on you and your fellow promulgators to achieve this effect. If you don't achieve it, I'm going to dismiss you. Okay, well... <laughs> Are you listening? Yeah, yes. Right. I can't help but hear you, okay? Right. <laughs> You've got a clear I'm voice and I got All those people responding to your, to your uh, fund drive request to demand their money back if you fail in, on October 24th. Well, you know, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a thing, actually, you're raising a point because, actually, October 24th has to happen and it has to be a, this kind of thing that we're talking about. And one of those things I, was, I wanted to ask you about because, you know, I was reading Niemöller's quotes the other day and I was thinking, well, a lot of people know that poem about first they came for the communists and yeah. didn't speak up. But there was a second quote that he said, which I think is really, and very few people ever talk about this. It was right after he got released from the concentration camp that he had been in for seven years for opposing the Nazis. And he said, we preferred to keep silent. We are certainly not without guilt or fault. And I ask myself again and again, what would have happened if in the year 1933 or 1934, 
14,000 Protestant pastors and all Protestant communities in Germany had defended the truth until their deaths. If we had said back then, it's not right when Hermann Goering simply puts 100,000 communists in concentration camps in order to let them die, I can imagine that perhaps 30,000 to 40,000 Protestant Christians would have had their heads cut off, but I can also imagine that we would have rescued 30 to 40 million people because this is what it cost us. What do you think of that? I think it's glorious. Yeah, granted, of course, it's hindsight. We're all geniuses at that. But uh, Germany is, is paying through the nose now for what it did then. And uh, I, uh, I am proud of what the Germans have become out of the Holocaust that they created. So it, it, it can have been all the other countries around Germany are going to rot and they're speaking ill, and they're speaking evil, and uh, they were the sufferers. So I guess we're the two faces of the hyena. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the reasons I asked you this question is because I know you and I have talked about this a lot, and it's this point about people have a responsibility to raise their voice and to actually take this stuff on. You know, the silent majority, I was just on the way over to the station this morning, I was listening to a piece called Silent Majority, which is uh, from, by Eddie Harris with Gene McDaniels, and he talks about the silent majority better stop being silent or we're all going to be silent yeah. very quickly. It will be seen by, um, we've got a year, a little over a year now to the next election, and we'll see what kind of stature the voters and the people of America give us when they elect the next president and the next Congress. And, of course, we keep hedging our bets. We keep putting in a, a, a let's say, a, a far-right president, and then we elect a liberal Congress. We never try to do the same thing at the same time. It's to negate each other, and a lot of it creates non-motion, non, non-growth for once. I'd like to see what we do when we uh, elect the same party or the same group of of activists Hmm. in both the executive and in Congress. You know, there's something that that actually strikes me, though, which is another thing to consider, which is when you talk about, you know, the need to actually stop this, to stop this police terror and murder, when you talk about the need to actually change a society, we are dealing with something that's societal. And I know you've been one of the people when I think of somebody who has stood up against police brutality and injustice, I'm serious about this now, man. I'm not, gonna, I'm not kidding around with you or looking for a, you know, a snappy response. But ever since I've known you, man, you have been one of the most outspoken people in Hollywood, whether it was El Salvador, whether it was Mumia, there was all kinds of stuff around that, you know, when the war broke out after 9-11, all this other stuff. You've stood up against it. I, you know, when I had you on my show, you came on the day that they declared Homeland Security as an official department of the U.S. government. And you compared that to Nazi Germany. I was listening to that last night as I was you know, just thinking about what we would talk about. You know, you've always been there. You've always raised your voice. And you've been hit for it, but you never backed down. Why? I'm too dumb to. Out of hell with that. I told you, no snappy remarks, man. <laughs> really, why? I mean, it's serious. because uh, I, think I, I think I, you know, I'm... I'm like a little kid. I said, no, no, you can't have that. That's mine. And I guess the same applies to my uh, feeling about ideas and, and uh, causes. When I was branded as a communist uh, for uh, supporting the uh, medical aid to El Salvador, it was not that I was being a communist. I was being what I call 
being a humanist. They they needed they needed the medical aid. So I was happy to be part of the board that gave it to them. But people are, are too easily confusing when they when they come to discuss humanism and communism. And unfortunately, capitalism is a far behind on those elements. We've got to make capitalists and capitalism more benevolent than they certainly have a record for. I would put that in the land of, okay, we're dreaming. And for me, that can only be a nightmare. When you look at a system that's actually based on all this stuff, and this is another argument, but a system that's it'll actually... Be a possibility, it'll be a probable goal. You establish that as your goal, then they can't call you a communist. <laughs> but, but I want to be called a communist, so that's oh, where we'll, 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 we'll have you back on to talk about that. Let me bring on right now, I'd like to bring on Sharon Irwin. And have her talk a little bit about this, all right? Because Sharon is the mother of Tony Robinson, who was killed by the, by the police in Madison, Wisconsin, back in March 6th of 2015. So let me bring Sharon on and, and just have her join in the conversation. Sharon, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. You were the, and I meant to say you were the grandmother of Tony Robinson, so welcome yeah, to the I'm show. Yeah, I'm a grandmother. Yeah. I'm a yeah. Let's talk about this. Tell people what happened to Tony Robinson. On March 6th, he was shot and killed by the Madison police. He was actually murdered. The man shot him seven times on a video, and we were told that he was justified in the shooting. So I have been standing up a whole lot more. In fact, I have you know, I've known about and who Ed Asner is for a very long time, because I am myself almost 60 years old, and I appreciate his comments about and his willingness to be out there as an activist and to take the, the slams that he takes and the people saying, no, 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 because it's not an easy path to rock. And I understand that. I, I too, am looking for numbers in New York with Rise Up October. I also understand that people are so, don't want to come out of their comfort zone. And coming and standing up is coming out of your comfort zone. And I make a people uncomfortable. Let me bring on Andrea Irwin, who's Tony's mother. Well done, darling. Well done. Thank I'm glad you. to know you. Mm-hmm. You too. Andrea, are you there? I'm here, yes. Hi. Hi, how are you? And you're Tony Robinson's mother. Why don't you tell us what, ha- what happened to Tony? My son was a normal normal 19-year-old kid finding his way in life. He comes just starting out. Happened to ingest some form of a substance, hanging out with his friends, to a point where he needed help. He needed that medical assistance. His friends called the police. And the police officer that showed up didn't afford my son the right to even have a chance to acknowledge or even though a police officer was there. He showed up and went in and was malice and shot and killed my son seven times. My son died in the dark hallway looking at the man that killed him. And what it's done for us in our community is my, where my mom is in the street, she keeps his name alive and she's the one that says, let the world know I'm in the bottom in grassroots with the activists in the city trying to make, I need to make change. We need to make sure this stops. This is an epidemic. My, my son was a beautiful young man, and Madison Wisconsin thought this was never going to happen here. And it's happened here. It's happening everywhere. My son has just become a part of an epidemic that is nationwide, and if we don't make up stand up just like going and, and becoming a large group in New York or in Ferguson, Missouri or Madison, Wisconsin and make it stand and say to the world 
we have to stop. There will be more children dying. There's going to be a civil war. All right. Now, Sharon, let's go back to you for a minute. Sharon, tell me something. You know, one of the things that I wanted to also talk about is that the cop, when the, when they, when the cop went in and, you know, I mean, basically, he dragged your grandson's body out of, you know, from, from where he was shot down the steps out into the street like it was a bag of garbage. And he then went and said that he had no choice but to shoot. And when he says this and he describes all this stuff, it's actually he fired those seven bullets all within 18 seconds of being there. Exactly. Let's talk about that a little. Okay. Well, I have actually requested and received all the evidence that they have, that they gathered, and I I found out a lot, and I put the story together myself, and I know what really happened, and I I say this: there is no honor in a lie, there is no justification in a lie, and there is no justice in a lie, and I have caught this man lying. So what happened? And it started with this. My, my grandson was coming down the stairs, and you must remember he was high. He was not aware the police officer was there. He never introduced himself. There are 12 steps. My grandson is six foot four. He takes the steps when he's running three at a time. Matt Kenny, in a statement to his captain, or excuse me, his sergeant, said, and I quote, I got possibly halfway when he came around the corner. So that would have made it about five or six steps. But in his statement, he says he goes all the way up the stairs. They get into a huge fight. He falls back down to the eighth stair. My grandson beats his brains out in a hole in the wall. And he had to shoot him because he was afraid he was going to lose unconsciousness. What he tells his sergeant was, I possibly went upstairs. He went around the corner. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Were you hurt? I only got hit once. I'm okay. This is the man that gave CPR to my grandson. I heard him. This is evidence that I heard. They totally, totally just like forget there's a bullet hole at the top of the stairs in the wall behind where my grandson was running down, which means the man shot at him before he made contact with him. But nobody's talking about that bullet hole. Mm-hmm. I can't even find out how many bullets he shot out of his gun. Mm-hmm. The fact that they gave this officer all the evidence, let him sit down for an hour and a half. Three hours. And they make a statement. There's no justice in anything that's done. Right. No. They ignore it. Not from the DA, not from the city of Madison, not from the police department. They start a smear campaign against him, and they do this with everybody they shoot. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrea... Let's talk with you a yeah. minute, because you were chiming in there, and you say it was three hours, and they've refused. They've exonerated the cop, right? Yeah, they exonerated him. The DA decided to call me with the information of the non-indictment on Mother's Day, which took away my entire... I have three surviving children who are all trying to grieve their oldest brother. He decided Mother's Day was not a day I was to be afforded this year after losing my son. What they've done in this city has been ridiculous from the beginning. They they kept me from my child in the hospital. I wasn't allowed to see him. They locked us out of the hospital when none of us were being hostile. They separated me from my family. I was told my son was dead when I was alone. From the beginning, they went against my son with lies. Mm-hmm. They 
publicly released my address knowing that we had been getting threatened. Like, the city has gone above and beyond to hurt us because the fact of what they've done, that what happened to my son, mm -hmm. they know, they said the man that murdered my son murdered another man in 2007 under some really odd circumstances and was given the Medal of Valor for shooting a man in his head who had a pellet gun. But now he has murdered yet another person, a 19-year-old unarmed black child, had become a part of the national conversation. Well, the city's not going to say that this man they gave the Medal of Valor to is a murderer, mm -hmm. even though he's a murderer. And all of the evidence that we're uncovering shows that not only is he a murderer, but the city is so much trying to save their face and how we're supposed to be the number three city in the United States to live that they'll allow this murderer to continue to go on with his life. Now, as of now, he is back to work, but in an unarmed position, training other police officers. Yeah. My children have had to see this man in the street. Let me, let me real quick, I want to get back to Ed for a minute. Ed, you know, this, ends, this sort of adds, I think, to me, and my thing as I was thinking about this, it adds a little bit more to that Niemöller quote I was talking about, that if we don't stand up, what actually, you can see this unfolding. This is gaining black and brown people, the, disproportionately the targets of, and they're killed disproportionately in disproportionate numbers than any other group in society, and particularly black people. And black people, mainly, it's been when, you know, disproportionately high numbers that have been, they didn't have a weapon. You know, let's talk about this a little bit, but where does this sit with you in terms of the need, like you're speaking out, but how the hell do we get to these people that are in Hollywood that have a platform to say something? What do we have to say to people to get them to stand up and say, no, I will not stand and watch this go down? I think that's been a universal cry from the beginning of man climbing down out of the trees. You just have to keep applying your nose to the grindstone. That's, and hopefully you'll strike the sparks that ignite people and uh, to get away from your nose. It's a constant, un unfolding, unending universal problem. And I'm, 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 I'm very impressed at how well the grandmother and the mother have described the incidents how well spoken they are, and I think you've, you've gained some some new uh, support by just hearing them today. I, I also, at the same time, wonder uh, how whether Scott Walker reflects what Wisconsin has become, or whether he has influenced, created this influence by his campaigning and his utterances. It's a subject to be discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, I thank God that he no longer is a candidate for president and should never have been. But uh, let's hope we are successful in weeding out some of the other trash. All right, Ed. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I'm going to real quick go back to Andrea and Sharon. Andrea, why do you think October 24th is so damn important? Give people a reason why they need to be there. The thing with what's been going on, and it's not like it's new, it just seems to be more prevalent in the media, is awareness. It's the more people that know what is going on, the more people that have it in their face, it's power by numbers. And the more numbers you have, it seems to be in every case that's ever made any difference and change in this country, 
is that people don't start paying attention until they start seeing the numbers of people that are starting to believe in the same thing. And then they say, hmm, maybe they're on to something. There's many people we can get to come and stand up, and we're all saying, look at what is happening. And we hold signs with the amounts of names of people and cities and, and ages of these people, these babies, these fathers and sons and people that are dying. That makes people have to look at what we're doing and say, well, look, why are they doing that? And it's now in my face. I can't ignore it. Now look at how many people there are. It's not just two. It's not ten. Now it's thousands. Then it's millions. And then things can happen. All right, Andrea, I want to thank you. Let me get back to Sharon. And Sharon, let me give you a chance to talk about this. Why are you calling on people to be in New York on on October twenty on October twenty fourth, Michael, I, I'll tell you, I agree with you in terms of when you were talking to Ed about the similarities in the regime of Hitler. Uh, we're not even looking at that. Uh, this happened because everybody thought if I shut my door and go in my house, I'm all right. I'll be all right. Well, we're not going to be all right. There's seven billion of us out here, and I know if we stood up. There is nothing that could stop us, absolutely nothing. And I feel, right now I feel like I'm a butterfly, and I'm flapping my wings, and I want to cause a tsunami across this world, and we can all get up and be butterflies together. I don't feel like if we do this in a violent manner that all we're doing is changing faces. We need to change the structure. And what we are talking about is a system that doesn't want to be changed mm-hmm. and uh, therefore will come for us. Okay, well, I want to, you know, both, both of you, actually, this has been, I wish we had a lot more time, but as it, as it always happens, we have a schedule to follow here, and I, I have to follow it. So I want to thank, Ed, thank you very much for joining us. I grieve at your loss, ladies. I grieve. <laughs> Ed, thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much, Michael Slater. I enjoyed this. And Andy, I love you. And Sharon, yes, thank you. And Andrea, thank you very much, too. Okay? Thank you. Thank you all. All right. All right. Take care. Take care. All of you, take care. And talk to you again soon. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we have just been talking with Ed Asner, award-winning actor and a person who's always put his put it on the line to stand up against injustice and things like police murder and brutality. We've also been talking with Sharon Irwin, the grandmother of... Tony Robinson, a 19-year-old black man murdered by Madison, Wisconsin police on March 6, 2015. And we've been talking with his mom, Andrea Irwin, all right? 